0: If you're on a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Genesis chapter 9. And I'm still thinking of that line in the song we just sang. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, stand before the throne. Uh, The message uh, this morning, we might change one word there. It would go like this. Dressed in his righteousness alone, shameless, stand before the throne. You'll see what I mean by that in a moment. And happy Father's Day to all you dads out here today. I hope you have a great, great day. And this is not a Father's Day message per se, but it has many Father's Day ramifications. So everything's applicable, right? All Scripture's profitable, amen? And uh, so, uh, in fact, our Scripture text today involves one of the greatest dads in all of the Bible. A great dad, but not a perfect dad by any means. In fact, the text is going to... Uh, graphically bring that out. Uh, speaking of graphically, uh, have you ever accidentally walked in on somebody who was dressing, or somebody ever accidentally walked in on you? I'm not looking for testimonies here. Okay. <laughs> what did you do? Did you scream? Did you yell? But you instinctively, I know one thing you did. You grabbed something to what? To cover to cover up why it's just another human anatomy well you know why all of us instinctively consciously know why you do that because exposed nakedness and shame have been synonymous since the fall of man And with that in mind, I want you to go to our text, the end of chapter 9. Actually picking it up in verse 18, here is what the scripture tells us. The sons of Noah... Who went from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now that's giving us, that little parenthetical thought's going to give us a hint into where the writer is going. Be it, Moses wrote this, so is Moses writing from the perspective of looking back and the Canaanites that were now in the land when he was writing, or is he telling us a little bit about what was going on even then at the time of Noah? These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, just like Adam, a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, again, notice the parenthetical thought, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a, a garment. The Hebrew says the garment. Laid it on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness, nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, which is a very interesting way to talk about waking up, right? It doesn't say he woke from his sleep, but when you get drunk, you wake up from your wine. And knew his youngest son, he knew what his youngest son had done. He said, cursed be Canaan. Not him, but Canaan. A servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So we see just from the reading of this text that there was an extra passenger on the ark. The ark had a stowaway, unaccounted for except by God. The passenger, the stowaway, was sin. And its hiding place was in the hearts of the eight souls that were in that ark. So while God wiped out the sinful world, sin still resided above, above that flood. And we can see this from here. The new Adam, Noah, emerged as he emerged from the ark. He would do so unlike the first Adam, who was, came from God, was naked and unashamed. This new Adam, Noah, Was naked and ashamed. The other day, my wife was reading in Exodus and reading about the story of Moses, and she had made the comment, "You know, there's nothing in the passage that tells us how Moses discovered his heritage. Uh, We don't know how Moses found out he was a Jew. Remember, he went back and he hung out with him, ended up killing that guy, and remember all that." Well. It's true. We don't know. We're, we have, we're left to speculation. Did, did, uh, did Moses' uh, birth mother tell him while he was being weaned? Did the servant who brought, her, brought him back to his mother tell Moses? Did his Egyptian mother, did God somehow by divine revelation let Moses know that he was actually a Jew? We are left to speculation. Now, that kind of speculation, this is sort of, that's sort of trivia Trivial, that is, but when it comes to more important matters of Scripture, when it comes to speculation, we we do well to heed the advice of Thomas Campbell who said back in 1809, where Scripture speaks, we speak. Where Scripture is silent, we are silent. That's just really good advice because it's our nature to speculate, isn't it? It's our nature to speculate, to extrapolate, and just plain fill in all the gaps that God himself has not seen fit to fill. We just got to help God out, so to speak. And while Bible exposition is always doing it, the, the work of trying to figure out exactly what the text means by what it says, pulling other companion text in, that's very and vitally important to understand in the Bible. We're in dangerous ground when we just start sticking our own thoughts of what was happening in the text and this text lends to quite a bit of speculation by the way it does help us from time to time to find companion texts to help us understand what was going on so for instance you remember the story of abraham and isaac god tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, offer him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. Remember, he takes those three days, he goes there. When it's all said done, here's Isaac laying down, this young teenager, and here, here's his father with heartbreaking knife wielding over him, ready to plunge it into him, cut him open, and turn him into a burnt sacrifice. Remember the story? Angel comes up, said, no, 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 I know that you're loyal, you love God, and this and that. Are we left to think, man, was this just Raw obedience on Abraham's part and it was certainly obedient. But we go forward 1,500 years, we read the book of Hebrews, we go to chapter 11, and the writer of Hebrews gives us insight into exactly what was happening in the heart of Abraham as he wielded that knife over his son. It tells us in Hebrews 11 that he just surmised, look, this is the son of promise, this is the seed of blessing, you're going to build a nation out of him, that's what you told me, you're going to have to raise him from the dead. And nobody had ever been raised from the dead. So that tells us what was going on in the heart of Abraham at the time. So that said, this passage before us is, has borne speculation, and I might add, horrible, disastrous, and even murderous interpretation. And you know things are really bad when your interpretation leads to murder, amen? Of course, it's from this very passage what I'm talking about is from this very passage. I hate to admit it, but Bible-believing Christians from generations past, racially driven, saw this the curse upon Ham, which actually is a curse upon Cain and his son. They saw the curse upon Ham as the curse upon the black man. Since, as the argument goes, the descendants of, of Ham settled, in the northern parts of Africa, and they became, then the text says they became servants. Servants were slaves, hence the justification for the slavery of the black man. If that sounds crazy to you, you you don't know your history. I had an older gentleman in the first church I pastored that absolutely believed this. It's ludicrous. The Southern Baptists uh, have just doubled down on their own repentance of this because the Southern Southern Baptists were really bad in believing that that's what this text actually taught many years ago. They don't believe this anymore. They've repented of that, and we thank God for that. Amen? But this account does lend itself to questions, and it lends itself to speculation. In fact, older Bible expositors uh, tend to give old Noah a break. They, they tend to cut him some slack. They give him a pass. You know, old Noah, you know, he got out of the ark, and he made a vineyard, and he, you know, he didn't know what he was doing. He just kind of got drunk. The man was over 600 years old. Seriously. And watch this. If Canaan, who's referred to not once but twice in the text, if Canaan was already around. And remember, Canaan was the son of Ham. He wasn't just the son of Ham. He was the fourth son of Ham. That means if he was around, that means that Noah now has not a few, but many grandkids already. Okay? And then there's the whole wine-producing vineyard here. I have a friend whose son owns and operates a vineyard, and he, he tells you can't even start to harvest grapes for three to four years. So we don't know what's going on except to say that there are at least several years that have taken place since the ark has landed. And I speculate 20, 30, 50 or more. I mean, Noah himself lived 350 years after this. We just don't know. What do we know? What do we know from this account? Well, we know certain things. One, in time. How much time, we don't know. At least I'm gonna guess 20, 25 years after the ark, maybe more, Noah plants a vineyard. He gets hammered, gets naked, which often happens when you get hammered, and passes out. Ham, his son, sees him and tells his brothers, whatever Ham saw here, Whatever he saw, he he obviously mocked his father, hence the curse that comes wailing down upon him. Now listen, we know this, that when Ham walked into that tent and saw his dad naked, we know from the text itself that not only did he lovingly cover his father's shame, which he should have done as a son, He further exposed it by going out and telling his brother. In fact, not just going out and telling his brother. In fact, verse 23 is very revealing. No pun intended. But if you look there, it says it talks about a garment. See the, and I I mentioned this in just the reading. The article is there. It literally is the garment. Our Kent Hughes surmises from this that what you have here is, is Ham walking to the tent, seeing his father, the garment that should have been on him, should have been covering him. He did, instead of taking the garment and lovingly covering up his father and protecting his dignity, he takes the garment, walks outside and says, look, look at dad in there. So it's total exploitation. And so you see what happens at this point, his his brothers are completely beside themselves. They, they, in turn, they're mortified. They take the garment. They put it between their shoulders. They walk backwards twice, the text tells us. Not once, but twice. They don't look back. And out of love and respect, they cover up their dad. Now, we know that Noah then awakes. He awakes again. Notice the preposition From his wine. Wow. Talk about the powerful, destructive influences of alcohol in particular, that which, and I'll come back to that, excessive use of it. But he wakes from his wine, discovers his son's sin. Again, speculation. Start filling in gaps. How did he, we don't know how we, did he, did he overhear him boasting? Did, did, his, did Shem and Japheth tell him? Did his wife, we just, we don't know. We just know he finds out what Ham had done. And with that, he curses not Ham, but Canaan. Ham's fourth son. Is Canaan alive? Is he 15, 20 years old? Is he already showing that trajectory of rebellion? Is it on this basis that he levies the curse? We don't know. It is incredibly interesting and even prophetic, is it not? As it turns out, the curse upon Canaan comes forth with incredible clarity, striking clarity no less. We see what happens as we unfold the scripture here. In fact, as one writer put it, the uh, uh, Canaan was an apple that didn't didn't fall far from the tree. They rarely do. Am I right? They rarely do. And, And so the Canaanites, and remember Moses wrote this, so Moses is writing from the perspective, he knows the Canaanites, they're embedded into the land that he and Joshua and company would be assigned to root out. The Canaanites would become famously or infamously known for their continuous opposition to Israel. And they were, the Canaanites, Were an ex, all I can say is they were an exceedingly depraved people. Archaeology bears all this out. But not just archaeology, just go to the Bible. In Leviticus 18, one chapter, just one chapter in Leviticus 18, where the laws being unpacked. God tells the Jewish people, don't be like the Canaanites because of their, watch this, nakedness. The term nakedness in one chapter, Leviticus 18, is used, are you ready for this? 24 times. Referring to the Canaanites. And in fact, not only is it mentioned 24 times, it's mentioned euphemistically. In other words, God's way of protecting our minds as we read Leviticus 18, he's protecting our own minds by simply using the term nakedness, which is bad enough, but it's actually a a euphemistic term for much, much worse than just nakedness. Such was the sexual sin of the Canaanites. And I can tell you this, any of the sick, pornographic, voyeuristic elements of our society today. They can all be traced back to this text right here. All of it. Is it any wonder that when Joshua and company got into the land, God said to them, as it refers to the Canaanites, drive them out, quote unquote. And some, of, some people read that and they say, oh, you're just so mean to those people, Joshua. Are you kidding me? God was doing it for his own people's Protection. And all I can say to you, dads, and you, parents, is to please protect the minds of your children. And the bet, you ready for this? The best way you can protect the minds of your children is to protect the mind of yourself. As, as for the curse upon them, this. They would serve. They're going to serve everybody, these Canaanites, and they would serve every band of people that would come through, including the Jews, all by the curse of Noah. And so while we might know, we might not know exactly all of the details that came down from this, we know it was bad. It was really, really bad. This curse that was pronounced upon generations to come. Now listen. We would do well to remind ourselves we're talking about Noah here. (laughs) We're talking about Noah and his sons. We're talking about Noah. Noah who was righteous. Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah who walked with God. Noah who was the very standard of what it meant to walk by faith, not by what? Sighty, building an ark, and it's never rained. Noah, the man who was, in addition to all of that, God's anointed preacher, the only preacher of righteousness on the whole face of the earth. And Peter tells us he was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. And beyond that, he was the very standard of obedience because chapter six and verse 22 says, quote, he did all that God commanded him. This is Noah. He's a man of God, a robust man of God. We can aspire to be like Noah, except here. Because the Bible doesn't paint, with the exception of Jesus, flawless portraits. Were it not for the curse and its generational ramifications, this part of the Bible might have been glossed over. But this passage of Scripture does more than just give us an explanation to the history of the Canaanites. And that's what I want to spend the balance of our time with you on. The story of Noah and his sons gives us a warning to the lazy. There is a warning to those of you who've known Jesus for many years. As Spurgeon says, there's a lot of dark hearts that lay under gray heads. Noah's sin wasn't that he drank wine. It was that he got drunk. He lost control. Noah lost his edge and then lost control. Listen to this. Spiritual laziness will be your ruin if you're not careful. As again Spurgeon says, God never allows his children to sin successfully. Warren Wiersley points out that Scripture doesn't condemn drinking wine. In fact, the Old Testament said that wine was a sign of blessing. It was used for sacrifices. But Scripture clearly condemns repeatedly drunkenness. And a warning to those of you who would indulge in an occasional glass of wine or a beer don't get smug, don't get brazen. And don't get stupid because that's what you become when this thing takes over your life. The Bible, history and the Bible is littered with men particularly who started great and ended awful, started strong and ended weak. And I would warn all of you dads out there today to not get Lazy. Don't lose your edge in your walk with God, no matter how long you've been walking with him. Because Noah is a powerful example to that end. Here's a second thing I would say the story of Noah and his sons give us. A reality check for the family. A reality check for the family. I think it's been enough years to share this illustration, but it was many years ago over at Grace Church here in Des Moines. A friend of mine was teaching a Sunday school and he was teaching through the book of Romans and he was in chapter three and he was extrapolating on the wages of sin is what? Death. He was teaching on this subject. And all of a sudden there was a, there was a, a knock on the door right in the middle of his class. And the superintendent opened the door and said, waved him over and so he pardoned his class. He walked over and walked and he, walked outside into the hallway and the superintendent says, hey, there's a window with a shade right behind you. He goes, yeah, yeah, don't open it. And he said, why? He goes, the night before, and Grace was under construction at that time, expanding their facility, a couple of young men had gone in to steal some of the equipment that was there. One of them, while on the second floor, fell, got caught up in the wiring his friend, out of fear, took off running. It was the middle of the winter. And hanging right outside of that window was the body of a young man. And my friend said, oh my goodness, I was teaching. What if I had been teaching the wages of sin and walked up in the window, whoo, is death. That would have been an illustration You talk about illustrations. Shem, Ham, and Japheth saw it all. They saw God interact with their dad. They saw the flood when it had never rained. They saw judgment. They saw that the wages of sin is, say it, death. They saw destruction. The whole old world wiped out and a new world coming. They saw it all, and one of them still rejected the grace of God just like some of you right now. You've seen so much. You've seen God's grace in your parents' lives. You've seen God's grace in your wife's life. You've seen God's grace in your husband's life. You've seen God's grace in this church's life, and yet you reject the grace of God. And yet, is this not a reality check for the family? Some of you say, well, you know, I've just taught Johnny everything. I don't know why he isn't. Listen, salvation is of the Lord. Amen? It's not of you. It's not of me. And in the mystery of all, God uses my efforts. He uses my work of discipleship. He uses the inculcation of truth into our kids' lives. But in the end of the day, salvation is of the Lord. we got to leave that with him. So there's a reality check for the family. and. Probably this is the most important thing from my perspective. All of these are important, but it's a portrait of ourselves. The story of Noah and his sons gives us a portrait of ourselves. Noah's story is our story. For all of his godliness, he was a sinner, amen? And so are you. And if the stories of the Bible were written by you or me, they would look like high school senior portraits. You know, in the olden days, they just airbrush them. Now they just, you go through the filter Says Those who are photographers, you take every zit off the face, and wow, what happened to him? We wouldn't have it any other way. We don't want any blemishes. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. When it puts out the family tree, it's warts and all. A couple of months ago, we had a family come to our church. His last name was Nemers. So in part he came just to hear the guy who had the same last name as him. And as a result, we struck up a friendship. We started having Bible studies together. God saved him and his wife. They're here this morning. And, uh, but in the first Bible study he came and with a big old family tree and I looked at it, it's the exact one my parents gave me 30 years earlier. Different branch, same tree and in turn i gave him a family tree which really uh, gave a whole lot of elaboration on the family down through the, the years and even the centuries but it made me reminded me of the story of the smith family a couple of generations ago here is this family this strikingly successful family had a number of illustrious individuals a couple of senators uh, one, a couple, more, a couple of Wall Street wizards out of the dude, and so they, they, out of the bunch. And so they, uh, one of the family members were putting together this elaborate family history. And uh, they wanted all the details, but they had one little problem. That was Uncle George. Because Uncle George apparently had murdered somebody and had been executed by electric chair. So this slick biographer said, not a problem, I'll take care of it. And what he wrote was this. Great Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position with the strongest of ties, and his death game was a real shock. Listen, we laugh, but that's what some of you are doing right now. Some of you are doing that Right now, you're so stinking proud. You're too ashamed to tell your kids, your grandkids, you're too ashamed to tell people around you of, watch this, your forgiven failures. Because after all, they're forgiven. Why would I ever bring them up again? Listen, David sinned in the worst ways with Bathsheba. His sin wasn't necessarily recorded, but his confession was. Why can't yours be? You'd rather airbrush it. Tell a different story. When your kids or your grandkids or the people around you can learn from your pitfalls and actually avoid pitfalls themselves. The Bible doesn't avoid them. I think if I was going to write a book, it would, it, it, uh, it would be, I think the book would be called uh, something like uh, recantations. <laughs> Things I want to recant of. Things I said or did, I shouldn't have done. I, that might be of actual help to somebody. I told that a friend here recently, they said, would it be volume one? Anyway. <laughs> but Noah's story is the story of ourselves. It's a portrait of ourselves, is it not? One more thing. The story of Noah and his sons gives us a covering for our sin. Praise God for Shem and Japheth, Huh? Who did what they did to cover their dad to not, so he wouldn't lose all dignity. And after all, love covers a multitude of what? Covers a multitude of sins. Listen, our love for the people we love can't cleanse their sins, but they can, the love can cover their sin. Won't take the sin away, but it can cover, and it's a good thing. I have good news for you, though. When God covers our sins, he does cleanse them. The Bible says the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. It's the ultimate covering. Remember, David said, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And if you would receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you'll receive his righteousness. And his righteousness is your covering. Remember when Adam and Eve, back in the beginning, at the beginning of the beginning of our series, when they sinned, when they were ashamed, when they were naked and ashamed, they did what? They covered themselves with their own self-righteousness, with their own clothing, the clothing of the garden, the foliage of the garden. But that wouldn't do. Verse 21 of chapter 3 says God covered them with skins. That means they would have had to remove their self-righteousness, their clothing, and they would have had to put on the clothing of God, the righteousness of God. And thus we have the very first illustration to tell us all that our righteousness won't cut it. It won't cover your sin. It won't cover your shame. It won't cover your guilt. But the blood of Jesus will if you'll acknowledge your sin and receive him today. And if you're a Christian, a real Christian, a bona fide Christian, one who knows and loves Jesus, I would ask you this morning, are you so proud that you are unwilling To take your forgiven sins, your forgiven failures, and use them for the glory of God. And the help of the generation to come. Something worth thinking about. Amen? God, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. The story of Noah and his sons teaches us much. So, Lord, it's a warning for sure, for sure. I pray for those who are lazy, who've gotten spiritually lazy and their lives show it, Cause them to repent. I pray, God, for those of us who are only seeing today for the first time that, this, that Noah's story is their story. It's our story. And rather than covering it all up, rather than that is by ourselves, help us to be willing to use our stories for your glory and the help of others I pray particularly for those in this room who don't know Jesus, who've never received the covering that cleanses believing on the Lord Jesus who died and rose for them, if that's you my friend, repent turn to him and be saved and we'll give you the glory Lord in Jesus name, amen